0: Hey, well, good morning. Nine o'clock at Rocky Peak. How are we doing? Oh, you guys are doing well. That's awesome. Well, it's good to gather with you this morning, Rocky Peak. Whether you're joining us here in the Worship Center, whether you're one of our rowdy ones over in the Ridge, welcome this morning. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the very first time, special welcome to you. We're glad to have you, and we hope that the Lord meets you just in a new and a powerful way. Happy Super Bowl Sunday, everybody. The New England Patriots are in the Super Bowl yet again, which goes to show that the power of Satan is alive and active in the NFL. And if you happen to be here this morning as a Patriots fan, at the end of every service, we've got a prayer corner. We would love to pray for your salvation, that you would see the lights. Hey, I need to get them in. We're talking about suffering this morning. I'm a 49er fan. I know something about suffering. Yeah, we're horrible. So as as we go in. No, but sincerely, I got to say before we're going in, I really feel that this weekend is going to be quite a turning point for us as a church, especially coming off of last night's service. We're talking about a tough topic today. But one thing that I have found to be true in my life is often it's the tough topics in which the Lord gives me an opportunity for the most growth. And as we open up our word this morning, there is something truly beautiful about the scripture we're going to be looking at today. And so my hope and my prayer at Rocky Peak is that as we go in, we be ready to listen to what the Lord and the freedom that he wants to bring in our life. Amen? Hey, inside your program, there is a message note sheet, a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to not only help you follow along with this time of teaching, but to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray and we're going to get started. Holy Spirit, we are grateful because you are here this morning. You are here because we brought you in with us. See, as followers of Jesus, as his sons and daughters, when we gave our lives to Jesus, we were given his precious spirit to be our teacher, to be our counselor, to guide us, to lead us, to strengthen us, to empower us. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit every day in which we are being transformed. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit in which He is convicting us of sin, not to guilt us, but to allow us to free ourselves from bondage. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit in which every day we are becoming more and more reflections of our King Jesus. And so as we gather here this morning, we say, Holy Spirit, we want more. We want more of you. We want more of Jesus. We want to be a, more, a brighter light. We want to be more salt in our world. We want to leave this place with a deeper awareness that the Spirit is with us, that the Spirit leads us, and the Spirit guides us to bring hope to a world that desperately needs to hear the message of Jesus. And so as we open up your living and active word this morning, Jesus, as I often pray, let your word be the main event. My job as the communicator is to fall to the background. Let me become less and let you, King Jesus, become more and more through your word. We commit this time to you and all God's people said, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing the series that we started just a few weeks ago called Rooted the Rhythm of Relationship. And if you're joining us for the first time at Rocky Peak, this is a great time to be joining us. See, the heart behind this vision is that when we give our lives to Jesus, what we then find out is that he has an epic vision for our lives. And what's beautiful is that this epic vision is not for a select few. God's epic vision is not for, quote, the best of the Best, the most spiritual, or the most perfect. The reality is that his epic vision is for each and every Christ. Follower, And so what we're learning through this series is to experience this vision that God has for our lives. We do that by engaging in regular relationship with Jesus. To grow that relationship with Jesus, what we need to do is we need to make intentional choices to plant ourselves, to root ourselves deeper into the person and power of Jesus. And so this series and this life group season that we've been going through about Rooted is all about learning who truly is Jesus and what does it really mean to follow after him in our lives. And so far in this series, we've looked at two key things. The first is we looked at how we were introduced to God as a beautiful creator, as all-powerful and as almighty, and that even though his creation rebelled against him, he enacted this beautiful plan of salvation through his power to come and rescue his people. And then last week, if you were with us, we looked at this beautiful truth that this almighty creator God communicates to us his creation. In fact, Michael said it really well that the God of the Bible is one who speaks to his creation. And not only does God speak to us in many different ways, but he speaks so he can know us intimately in a beautiful way. And the reason why that's important, one thing that I love about Rooted is that it's very intentional in the order of its topics because they all build off of one another. And we need those first two truths to be our foundation for what we're tackling today. Today, the topic on the table is suffering. And so we're going to be, today's message is less of a philosophical or an apologetical why do bad things happen in the world, and more from a practical standpoint, looking at the reality that as Christ's followers, what is our response to suffering in our lives? What is our hope? What do we do? And how do we root ourselves deeper into the person of Jesus? Because I would never wish suffering upon anybody else, nor honestly would I wish suffering upon myself. But the reality is because suffering happens within suffering as Christ followers, it gives us a unique opportunity to grow in Jesus in a way we don't get in any other aspect of life. And so as we talk about this topic, the first thing we need to do is we need to put our cards on the table and we need to acknowledge the reality of our world and we need to acknowledge the current reality, our emotional reality, when we face suffering. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Our Current Reality, and your fill-in is this. Everyone experiences suffering. Everyone experiences suffering. Now, as you're writing that, I'm sure you're going, this is exactly the uplifting message I came to church to hear, right? Thank you for that and for making my Sunday. And while I joke, again, we need to put our cards on the table. We need to acknowledge the reality of our world that suffering is real. And not only is suffering real, suffering does not discriminate from the sinners and the saints. Everyone experiences suffering. And the reason why we experience suffering is that we live in a world that is broken, See, the truth of our world is our world has been ravaged by the evil of sin and rebellion. And while sin has caused so much destruction, the most vicious act of destruction that sin has caused is that it separated us from God himself. And if you think about it, God is our source of life. He is our source of light. He is our hope, our strength, our stability, because of the power of sin, we've been separated from that, and so therefore we experience the opposite. We experience darkness, we experience evil, we experience chaos, we experience anarchy, we experience suffering. And it's important to understand the beauty of the work of Jesus by having a proper view of the gravity of sin, that because of sin, we experience suffering in this world. And the reality is, as much as I don't want to acknowledge this truth. Suffering is unavoidable. And if I'm going to have an honest look as to what the Lord can do during suffering, then I need to be honest about my present reality. And that means that I need to let go of what I often call the Disney movie myth. And here's what I mean by this. If you've ever watched any type of Disney movie, they usually tell the same type of story. Usually have your two main characters— you usually have a conflict that is brought, brought, that is brought by some type of villain. You usually have, after many, many songs, the heroes <laughs> resolving this conflict. And by the way, have you ever noticed that usually the resolution to the conflict is some type of murdering of the villain in a horrific way? <laughs> and then once we reach the end of the story, what do we get? Those three magical words, happily ever after. And what are we meant to believe? That for the rest of their lives, these characters will no longer experience any type of conflict, suffering, or hardship. And what I call the Disney movie myth is that I want to believe that's possible in my life as well. I want to believe that I will at some point reach a level of stability. I will achieve a level where I have avoided suffering for the rest of my life. I want to believe that that is possible. That maybe if I just have the right amount of money, maybe if I have the right friends in my life, maybe if I move my family to, quote, the right area, maybe if I just live in my bomb shelter for the rest of my life, (laughs) then I will no longer experience suffering. Now, Christ follower, hear me clearly. That that reality, a real world without suffering, is the hope and promise we have in the kingdom of Jesus. That one day Jesus will come to take us home. Revelation 21 says that he will take us to a place, we call it heaven, in which he will wipe every tear from our eye. But until that day comes, I live on this side of heaven. And while I live on this side of heaven, I need to acknowledge the truth that suffering is unavoidable. There in your note sheet, you have James chapter one, where it says, consider a pure joy when you face trials of many kinds." If there was any piece of scripture I wish was different, it would be that. And honestly, I wish it was different in one simple word. I wish it just simply said, if. Then at least I would have the possibility of getting out of it. But the truth is, because I live in a world that is broken by sin, then what I experience regularly is suffering. I experience the result of sin. I experience and I cause anger. I experience hurt through addictions. I experience abuse of all kinds. I experience violence. I experience natural disasters. I experience racism. I experience terrorism. I experience cancer. I experience broken relationships. I and we live in a world that experiences suffering. And when we face suffering, we often find ourselves asking a combination of two core questions. And these are important questions. Why is this happening? And when is this going to end? And as Christ followers, as we acknowledge our emotional reality, we find ourselves in times of suffering asking those questions directly to the Lord, do we not? And the reason why we're asking is one of the most unsettling things about suffering is there's so much we don't know. In fact, those questions highlight what we don't know. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand what to do. I don't know what to do. When is this going to end? And I have to be honest, in those times of my life when I find myself asking God those questions, I ask them and it hurts to ask. Because what I'm really asking is, God, where are you? God, where are you in this? Why weren't you here to prevent this? Why aren't you pulling me out of this? I find myself asking questions of God going, are you mad at me? Did I fall out of favor with you? Are you punishing me? I find myself asking, do you care about me? Did you forget about me over here? Are you ignoring me? I find myself asking, if you do care, then is it that you just can't do anything about it? Are you not all powerful? Are you not good? In fact, many of us can not only relate to that, but we can sum it up in one word. We feel And if you've ever felt like that, it doesn't make you a horrible person. If you've ever felt like that, that doesn't make you a horrible Christ follower. That puts you in good company because it's a raw, it's an honest emotion. In fact, it's one that the Bible itself doesn't shy away from. It's not in your note sheet, but in Psalm 22, David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me, God? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And so that's our present reality when it comes to suffering. Now, the beautiful thing before us is this is only the beginning of what we're going to talk about this morning. It would be a horribly depressing place if this is where I ended, Right? I'm like, hey, everybody experienced suffering. Amen. Go enjoy your day. (laughs) But the reason why I started this is for two, excuse me, there are two core reasons why I started with this. The first one is we need to be honest about our reality. And the truth is the Lord is never going to punish you for being authentic. In fact, many times, authenticity and radical honesty is the first important step towards maturity. But the second step is, while this is our reality, what we're learning through Rooted is that there is a much bigger Jesus reality that we are now entering in. And so what we get to see now is when it comes to our suffering, what is God's truth? What is God's role? And the Bible is very clear about one core thing, that when we suffer, we ask the question, Jesus, where are you? And the answer is radical, powerful, and spectacular. And that leads to your second fill-in on your note sheets. In the section titled, The Power of His Presence, the answer to where is Jesus? This is your fill-in. Jesus has entered into our suffering. Jesus has entered into our suffering. And would you put a big box or flames or highlight the word entered? Let me explain what I mean. I mentioned the Super Bowl a little bit earlier, and you know when you're watching a football game or any sporting event, but for this analogy, a football game, you know when the camera pans when they're doing any type of field goal or an extra extra point kick, they show you the people in the stands and they're holding signs, and one of them inevitably is holding a sign that says, John 3.16. <laughs> By far, John 3.16 is the most famous Bible verse in the world, And as Christ followers, one of the traps that we often fall into, I know I fall into this, is that it's so famous, it's so familiar that we lose the impact of what it's trying to say. And as Christ followers, part of our growth is we need to reclaim the impact of what this means. See, in John 3, 16, it says that God the Father so loved the world. Now, we explain the state of the world, right? A broken world, a rebellious world, a world that is suffering because of our own choices, yet he so loved the world, he so loved the people in it, that he not only did something, he gave us his one and only son, Jesus. And think about this. In Rocky Peak, we often use the phrase that Jesus came into our time. And space, and so when we hear that, we understand that Jesus entered into our physical world. But think about what Jesus did. He entered into our physical world. He lived the life that you and I couldn't live. He took the punishment from my sins on that cross. He rose again three days later, conquered sin and death, destroyed the separation between me and God. Now because of Jesus, I can be blameless in the sight of God. I can interact with God the Father wherever I'm at. And not only that, but Jesus, then gives us the gift of himself, the Holy Spirit, so that the temple of God, the presence of God is no longer one physical location, but it's now you. Everywhere you go, you have the spirit of the living God inside of you. So what does that tell us? that Jesus not only entered into our physical world, but because he chooses to enter into your life, he enters your emotional world and he enters your spiritual world. See, one of the most beautiful things about reconciliation, about how we are reconciled by Jesus, is that before him, we were on our own. We were orphans. Now that we are his temple, he dwells inside of us at all times. That means every aspect of your life, When you are succeeding, when you are experiencing the good, when you are laughing, Jesus is there. When you are experiencing failure and sin, hurt and suffering, Jesus is there. This is what it means that God loves us, that he loves us so much that he has entered into the darkest portion of our lives to not only stand with us, but to endure with us. You know, there's an encounter in the life of Jesus in which Jesus had developed a friendship with this family, Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And Jesus gets word one day that Lazarus has fallen gravely ill, and by the time that he arrives to the site, Lazarus has passed away. And Jesus' response is that he weeps. He was grieved. And there's something beautiful that Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, says about that there on your note sheet. Let's begin with the tears of Jesus. What do we learn from them? When Jesus reaches Mary, she asks him a major theological question. Lord, why weren't you here? You could have stopped this." She asked him a question, but he couldn't even speak. He just wept. Jesus is troubled. He is deeply moved. This reaction is startling because when Jesus enters into this situation, he comes with two things you and I don't have. First, he comes in knowing why it happened. He knows how he is going to turn it into a manifestation of the glory of God. The second thing he has is power. He can do something about the problem. You and I can't do a thing to undo it, yet he still weeps. Why? Because he is perfect. He is perfect love. He will not close his heart even for 10 minutes. He will not refuse to enter in. He doesn't say there's not much point in entering into all this grief. He goes in. Brothers and sisters, hear this truth this morning, that your pain has not gone unnoticed by our Jesus. That your pain has not gone unfelt by our Jesus That not only has he noticed it, not only has he felt it, but our precious Jesus is so grieved by your pain that he decided to do something about it and he has chosen to enter into it with you, to endure with you, to weep with you, to strengthen you, to bring you to a place of peace. There are times in suffering in which I cry out and ask for clarity. I ask for answers. I ask for deliverance. And there are times in which I receive it. And then there are times in in, in suffering when I cry out in the same way and I don't. But regardless of whether I get the answers that I seek or not, the promise of the Bible is that the presence of God has entered it with me. That I am not alone, that I am not abandoned, but he suffers with me. And so what we need to do is for those times in which we don't know, we need to understand truly the power of the one that stands with us. And so as we talk about this epic God who gives us an epic vision, we need a bigger view of God himself. We need a bigger view of who it is that stands with us and exactly what it means that he is all-powerful. And so with that, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them up. If you've got your apps, go ahead and turn them on. We're going to be in the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible, in, in the 29th Psalm. Now, as you're turning there, I want to set up a little bit of context for this section of scriptures. For me personally, the Psalms are one of my favorite sections of scriptures. The Hebrew, that title, Psalms, comes from a Hebrew word that means praises. And so often, often as we understand it, the Psalms were a collection of music and songs for the early nation of Israel. Just like we began this service by singing and by worshiping through music, that's what the purpose of many of these Psalms were. In fact, if you ever spent any time in the Psalms, you notice that there's often instructions at the top, instructions that are musical instructions, whether certain notes or keys to play it in, whether instructions to a director of music. And what I love about the Psalms is my favorite type of music is, some, is a music that captures a genuine emotion. Is music that is not manufactured, but is just raw, honest, and real. And that's what we find in the Psalms. We don't find manufactured emotions. What we find is a raw, unfiltered diary, so to speak, of the ups and downs, of the confidences and the fears, of the successes and the failures, of the light in the dark of life of what it means to follow after Jesus. What we see in the Psalms is we often see authors genuinely going, God, you are incredible and beautiful. And then later, just a few Psalms later, we see these same authors going, God, have you forgotten about me? I'm angry. Where are you? And what's beautiful is that the Lord gave us these Psalms as an example of authenticity, that we can go to the Lord in this. And so as we go to Psalm 29, see the first 40 or so Psalms, we call it the first book of Psalms, they were mostly written by a man named David. Now, if you're unfamiliar with him, he became King David. We're talking David and Goliath David. And David, and especially in these first 40 or so Psalms, many of them deal with deliverance from suffering. Many of them are coming from a place. And it, makes, and it reminds me that David is a man that knew and experienced intense suffering in his life. See, if we're just familiar with a stereotype of David, we sit there and go, well, he was a spiritual superhero. He fought Goliath. He became the king. He worshiped God. He followed God no matter what he said. And the truth of the matter is that David's life was much messier than we often give it credit for. See, David understood suffering. And it was several years ago that I was in Israel with one of our study tours in which God deepened my view of the suffering that David experienced in his life. See one of the one of the places we go on that study tour is a place called the Caves of Adula. And the reason why we go there is this is a section in which David hid for many years when he was on his life from running from his life from King Saul. The king had snapped, wanted David dead, and David is hiding in these caves. Now as we go here the first thing you notice or the first thing I notice is these are not like Disneyland Tom Sailor Island caves. These are the base, the definition, dirty, uncomfortable. And not only that, these are tunnels that you crawl through. This is a network that you get on your hands and knees and you just crawl through. There aren't exactly big spaces and openings in this. And we only get exposed to a sliver of, but I remember this specific moment in which I'm crawling through the caves and I entered what I would call one of the rare big rooms. When I say big room, that it was about four feet high. And I was waiting for some of the people to crawl through the tunnel in front of me. So I remember I I sat down and I leaned against the wall and I'm uncomfortable and I'm sitting there. I just want to get out of here. I don't like it. And immediately the Lord brought me to David. And I began to wonder when David was sitting here as I'm sitting here, what kind of suffering was he experiencing? See, the first part of his journey that the Bible describes is here is David, who as a young forgotten member of his family, God directly through a prophet anointed him to be king. Imagine being told that. You are going to be king of this land. And then not only that, he then finds himself working for the king in the palace going, okay, this is going up. And then the king snaps And now David is on the run from his life, abandoning the life that he knew, having to abandon his closest friend, having to now live in a network of caves because he's hiding. And I remember sitting there going, what what does that have been like for me emotionally to sit there and go, God, you said I was going to be king and here I am living in a cave. See, David knew what it was like to suffer. And in fact, we see that reflected in many of his Psalms. But the beauty of David's writing is that he not only knew what it was like to experience the darkest seasons a soul can experience, but he knew what it was like in those seasons to encounter and discover a new joy in the fact that even though he doesn't have answers, even though his circumstances haven't changed, the presence of God is with him. And out of that heart, we get something such as Psalm 29. And so with that, David writes in verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so this is the first of three parts of this poem that he writes. And in this first one, what David is doing is he's sounding an alarm, so to speak. And he's saying, we need to worship God because God is worthy of it. If you look at that word, ascribe, it's not a word we commonly use in our language anymore today. And it tends to mean to give glory, to give honor to the one who deserves it. What I like is many scholars would say that the English translation of the Hebrew loses some of the power. This isn't just saying, yeah, somebody's awesome or somebody's great. This is truly saying, no, ascribe to God because he is king, because he is all powerful, because he deserves it. David says, heavenly beings worship God. He's not just talking about us. He's calling the angels. He's calling all of creation. He's saying God deserves all of our praise, that human praise alone isn't enough. And then he's not only gonna say, God deserves our glory, but he's gonna go on in the body of his psalm. To paint a clear picture as to why. And so what David is going to do as we read is he's going to use the metaphor of a storm. And this is a very intentional metaphor because often when we experience suffering, we've described it as the storms of our life, right? And so what David is going to paint is this picture of God's voice being the biggest storm imaginable bigger than our storms, bigger than our suffering. And he's going to paint this picture of the voice of the Lord starting over the Mediterranean, moving to the north of Israel, and moving down the land south. And as it moves, it is going to show its supremacy and its power over all the destructive forces of the earth. And so as we read then in verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord, excuse me, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. Let's stop right there. And so first of all, this power is starting over the water. And so just like today, we would acknowledge the same thing, but the ancient world, all cultures revered water because of its destructive nature. And if you think about storms, hurricanes, tidal waves, raging seas, tsunamis, things like that. The ancient world was very well aware of the fact that water was a destructive force. In fact, to the Jewish audiences, as David talks about the power of the destructiveness of water, they immediately think of two things. They think of how God used water in Noah's flood to bring judgment to a rebellious world. They think about how God used the Red Sea and crashed it over their Egyptian oppressors when Moses was leading the Exodus. But not only that, David is writing this knowing that nearby pagan cultures at his time, when they viewed the raging Mediterranean, their explanation to it was the Mediterranean rage because it would become the arena of the gods. That is where the gods fought. And so the picture that David is painting for us is one of supreme powerful power that the voice of the Lord goes over the destructiveness of water and it submits to his power. And then after that, he stops to focus on the power of the voice, on how it's majestic. And what's amazing is this is a theme we see throughout all of Scripture, that often when Scripture talks about the power of God, when it talks about God's supremacy, it talks about his voice. Scripture begins with the power of the voice of God by showing us that he spoke the universe into creation As we go back to that encounter that Jesus has with Lazarus, it was with his voice in which he commanded the dead man to rise and come out of the grave. And David begins this way because he is reminding us that when we experience suffering, when we experience hardship, Christ follower, the Holy Spirit in you is that voice. That voice that created, that voice that brings the water into submission, that voice that resurrects and conquers sin and death is the voice that speaks to you, is the voice that leads you, is the voice that strengthens you in your suffering. And then he continues with this picture. Verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf in Syrian, which is an ancient name for modern-day Mount Hermon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf in Syrian like a wild ox. And so let's stop right there. And so now, as the voice of the Lord is moving into the land, what David gives us is he gives us two symbols of their world, of, some, of the immovable strength and the immovable objects. Think about our suffering. We often view our suffering as Immovable. We often view our suffering as these strongholds or these fortresses that won't collapse. And so again, David continues with this picture that the cedars of Lebanon were these massively thick trees. They're still in existence today. In the ancient world, they were a symbol of strength and stability. In fact, royal families revered them that they would want that type of wood in their furniture, in their castles to represent strength, to represent stability. Again, they were so revered that pagan cultures viewed the forest of Lebanon as sacred to the gods. And then we also have this picture of a mountain. When we talk about somebody being amazingly strong beyond comprehension, we often use the metaphor of a mountain, right? We say they are as big and as immovable as a mountain. And so when we look at these immovable objects, what David is reminding us is the voice of the Lord moves the immovable. That the strength of the cedars of Lebanon That the strength of the mountains shake through the power of the voice of the Lord? And what I love about this imagery, what David is reminding us, that in our suffering, it feels like our whole world is shaking, doesn't it? In our suffering, it feels like everything is being shaken. And the point that David is making here is that when your world is shaken, your God is not. He is not shaken. And then he continues. Verse 7. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the deserts. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. Would you underline that word? Put a box around it. And in his temple, all cry glory. So again, he talks about how the voice of the Lord thunders and is like lightning. Lightning. And it's a beautiful picture. And so one thing I've had to come to learn about this imagery is that I've grown up here in Southern California, like many of you, and if you've grown up here, one thing I learned in my adult life is that what we consider like thunderstorms is not what the rest of the country considers thunderstorms. (laughs) That what we have pales in comparison. Does anybody experience a thunderstorm outside of California? I remember the first time I did, I thought I was going to die. (laughs) Because in California, we're weak. It sprinkles a little bit. We lose our minds on the freeway and the rest of the country, when it thunders, they're in a literal war zone. It's both intimidating and awe-inspiring at the same time. And so David, again, is showing the power of God's voice. And then through that, he continues to talk about the desert of Kadesh. So now the voice is moving to the south of Israel. And this desert was one of the regions in which the Israelites wandered for 40 years during the Exodus. And this desert, to a Jewish audience, represents a place of suffering a place of hardship because of their choices but still a place of suffering and what does the Lord do to this place of suffering? He rocks it and destroys it to to its core and then he says that all in his temple what that means is all followers of Jesus all who have given their life to him when they encounter the power of Jesus their response is to be in awe let me ask you a rhetorical question When was the last time you found yourself overwhelmed with awe for the power of God? When was the last time you genuinely found yourself in awe over who your God is? You know, if I'm honest, it had been a long, long time. And for me, it just happened just two days ago on Friday night. See, one of the gifts that we get through rooted is that as life groups, we get to do what's called a prayer experience. Many of your groups have already done it this weekend. A lot of your groups are going to do it within the next week. But the idea of this prayer experience is to gather and spend some extended time, an hour or more, just before the Lord, just learning to listen to his voice through different ways. And so I have the privilege of being a part of an awesome group of guys. And this past Friday night, we did our prayer experience here on campus. We came up here in an evening. We spread out. And what I did was I parked myself in one of the patio chairs right out there and I just started looking around, and then I found myself just simply looking up. And what was amazing about that was immediately when I looked up and started seeing some of the stars in the sky, I realized it had been a long time since I've simply looked up. I realized that I've always known the stars were there, and there was a point in my life where I was much better about that. But when I looked up, it hit me that it had probably been years and since I had been looking up, sure, I've seen pictures and I'm helping myself with his astronomy homework, but to just stop and look up at myself and immediately I felt myself overwhelmed with this sense of wonder, this sense of beauty, this sense of creation. And immediately in the best way possible, I felt so small. I got up and I remember walking to a darker part of campus because I wanted to see more. And as more and more stars started appearing themselves, I'm sitting there just smiling and laughing, going, oh my goodness, this is the power of our God. And I remember going back and I started writing in my Ruta journal that you know what, this cannot be a one-time thing. This is the power of the Lord. What steps do I need to take to remind myself to metaphorically and to literally look up and be in awe in the power of the Lord? And that is the descript- the emotion that David is describing right now. When we encounter even a fraction of the power of the Lord we cry out in awe. And then as he goes into verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Again, we talk about that destructive flood. That is justice and judgment. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. I love the beauty of that image that sometimes we minimize the role of God in our lives, sometimes unintentionally, but we kind of turn God into our buddy or our pal. And the reality is God is our king who has brought a new kingdom and we submit to his leadership. Now, if this had been the end of the Psalm, that would have been a beautiful encouragement for time of suffering, wouldn't it? It paints this beautiful picture of not only who God is, but it brings the reality of his power to the forefront. This would have been an awesome encouragement for those dark times of the soul. Be yet the Spirit led David to write one more thing that is much needed for us when we experience suffering. And that's in verse 11. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Let me read it again. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Would you underline those two things? He gives us strength and peace. So think about it. David has spent the entire psalm describing how all powerful, how amazing and awe inspiring God is. And so now he's showing us that not only has God revealed himself, not only has God revealed himself with supreme power, but he has come to impart that power into his creation, especially at times of suffering. See, what's beautiful about this is strength and peace are core characteristics of who God is. They're not things he simply does. They are part of his very identity. And so the fact that he gives us strength and peace as a gift, not as something we've earned, means that God himself is pouring his identity into your life. He has entered into our life. He has entered into our suffering. He has come to give you what you don't have and what can only be found in him. Because when it comes to suffering, we want answers, we want clarity. But more than anything, what we could use is strength and peace. And not just a temporary strength and peace, but an eternal strength and peace. And that is what God gives us. And see, the power of the psalm, this is a psalm that personally I've clinged onto a lot over the years, is that it reminds me that in those times when I don't have the answers I'm looking for, when I don't know what's coming, when I'm confused, when I'm frustrated, when I'm angry, in those times, I have an opportunity to focus on what I do know. And that is the truth of the power of the God that is with me. And so with that, what I want to do just briefly with the time we have left is unpack those two truths just a little bit. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled, Focusing on What is True, and your fill-in is this, Jesus is our strength. Jesus is our strength. And I want you to take note of the language I'm using with these fill-ins, because it's very intentional. Notice that I don't say Jesus gives us strength. Jesus is our strength. He has entered into our lives to do what we cannot. He is our strength. And the reality is he gives us the strength in our sufferings to do many things. He is our strength to persevere through it. He is our strength to grow and mature during times of suffering. In fact, Jesus is our strength to even prosper and find joy in times of suffering. But before that, it needs to begin with one important step. And what that is is that Jesus becomes our strength to trust. He becomes our strength to trust Him. And when I say to trust him, what I specifically mean is that he becomes our strength to trust that he is good in the midst of suffering. Because again, that is an honest response, isn't it, to our suffering? To sit there and go, God, are you truly good? God, are you good for me? Do you want what's best for me? I like to illustrate it this way. If you are now, or if you've ever been the parent of a teenager, you are the salt of the earth. (laughs) I spent many, many joyful years of my adult life working directly with teenagers. And one thing that teenagers are known for is coming into conflict with their parents. And often the conflicts can be over many different things, but the truth from a teenager's perspective is the root of the conflicts tend to be, are you really for me? Are you good for me? Do you really want what's best? Often the disagreement, in whatever form it may be is you and I, mom and dad, disagree on what it's best for my life right now. And the reason I share that illustration, that's often my posture and that's often our posture towards the Lord. See, when I disagree with God's trajectory for my life, when God wants to lead me here, but I want to go here, it's usually me doubting or arguing that God is good. Why do you want me to go there? That way seems harder. That way seems like it has less chance of success. That way seems like there's going to be more loss or it's unknown. This way is clearer. This way could still be good. This way could still honor you. Why do you want me to experience suffering? Especially when it comes to suffering, we sit there and going, why am I here? Why did I get picked out of this bunch? Why did you choose me to do this? Are you really good? And again, remember that honesty and authenticity is a beautiful thing that God does not shy away from. And so the reality is in those moments of suffering, one of the hardest things any of us can be asked to do is to trust that God is good. And in those moments, we need him to supernaturally be our strength. One of my favorite encounters in the life of Jesus occurs in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, what we have is that we have a father who comes before Jesus with a demon-possessed son. And he shares a little bit of a story that his son has been like this for years. Now, try to emotionally connect with this father. And I'm doing a little bit of speculation here, but he has got to be, at some respects, at the end of his rote. That this has been a long time suffering. That you got to imagine that he has tried to find other solutions, other remedies, that there have been other times of potential hope, only to have his hope crashed and burned and dashed so many times over and over again. He hears about Jesus. He comes and the disciples can't do anything. So then they go before Jesus. And you got to imagine that he's sitting there going, I hope, I hope that you can do something. But there's a part of me that doubts. And in fact, he says to Jesus, if you can do anything. And then Jesus responds, everything is possible for those who believe. And what's so beautiful is the father's response. It's this model of honesty. He says, I do believe Jesus Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me, Jesus. In these areas where I doubt. In these areas where I feel beat up. In these areas where I lack hope. And what Jesus does next is that he does not yell. He does not get on a theological, philosophical soapbox about why you should always believe that God works out the good for all people. He simply becomes that Father's strength. Jesus is our strength. And so I want to ask you to reflect right now on your life. Is there an area of your life right now in which you're wrestling with unbelief? Is there an area in your life in which you honestly would say, I doubt that God is good? Maybe it's because it's been an area of a long time suffering. Maybe it's because you think about what you've lost. Maybe you think about just the gambit of emotions that have been coming up. Maybe you think about how it's even hurt the way you view Jesus or God or his church. Is there an area in which you need to come before Jesus like this father did and say, this is an area of unbelief. Be my strength. So that's the first truth. We can long to, and then that takes us to the second truth. But before we do that, I love this verse in Isaiah on your note sheet. This is actually in your rooted reading for this coming week. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. And then that leads us to our second truth. Jesus is our Peace. Jesus is our peace. You know, we've been talking about this since the beginning of Rooted, that the story of Jesus is one of restoring peace, one of restoring shalom, that the story of Jesus is one of restoring harmony. And I love how David described peace in Psalm 29, that it's not something I achieve, it's not something I earn, but it's something I'm given as a gift, It's something that can only be found in the strength of Jesus because what it means to have peace and it means to have rest. But what's amazing about the peace of God is that we don't rest because our circumstances have been dealt with. We learn to rest in his presence and in his power. And it's amazing because the peace of God is a beautiful paradox because logically, in my mind, I would think that I would experience rest and peace when I'm out of these times of suffering or when I'm given a reason for it or when I have clarity or given things to do and the truth about God is the peace he gives us, we find peace in the midst of suffering. Over the years at Rocky Peak, I have been so blessed by so many of your stories where you've come and shared these hardships, these times of suffering and then have come later and have shared with me these stories that your circumstances have been changed, but the way you've depended on the Lord have and now you are experiencing peace and freedom and joy, even though this time of suffering is still going on. It doesn't make sense, but that's the power of God. Our memory verse for this week is there in your notes, Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. The peace of God which shatters what makes sense in my logic, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When God becomes our strength, we find rest regardless of our circumstances in the truth that he is good. And what I want to do is I want to share two real life stories that I think do a really good job of highlighting this. From two Christ followers, the first is a story from a Christ follower who lived several decades ago. See, I've been slowly going through a book by a pastor named Brian Chapel, and he writes a book to people in ministry called The Hardest Sermons You're Ever Gonna Have to Preach. And it's about how do you bring the hope and joy of Jesus in the darkest of situations. And in this book, he starts off by telling his own story and his own history through being a pastor. And he talks about one of his earliest experiences in coming along a faith that found peace in this. And he writes... As I was pastoring the rural church attended by farmers and coal miners, people accustomed to hard lives, I heard a story that taught me more about the nature and foundation of true faith than I had gained in much of my seminary education. The story tells of a miner who through a stalwart believer, who though was a stalwart believer, was injured at a young age. He became an invalid. Over the years, he watched through a window near his bed as life passed him by. He watched fellows' workers marry, raise families, and have grandchildren. He watched the company he had served thrive without attempting to make adequate provisions for his loss. He watched as his body withered, his house crumbled, and hope for better things in his life died. Then one day, when the bedridden miner was quite old, a younger man came to visit him. I heard that you believe in God and claims that God loves you, he said the young man. How? How can you believe such things after all that has happened to you? The old man hesitated and then smiled. He said, yes, there are days of doubt. Sometimes Satan comes calling on me in this fallen down old house of mine. He sits right there by my bed where you are sitting now. He points out my window to the men I once worked with whose bodies are so strong. And Satan asks, does Jesus love you? Then Satan makes me look at my tattered room as he points to the fine homes of my friends and asks again, does Jesus love you? Finally, Satan points to the grandchild of a friend of mine, a man who has everything I do not. And Satan waits for the tear in my eye before he whispers in my ear, does Jesus really love you? Startled by the candor of the old man's responses, the younger man asked, and what do you say when Satan speaks to you that way? Said the old miner, I take Satan by the hand and I lead him to a hill far away called Calvary. There I point to the nail pierced hands, the thorn torn brow, and the spear pierced side. Then I say to Satan, Doesn't Jesus love me? And then more recently, like many of you, I've been following the news this horrific story about the sexual abuse that's happened with our women's Olympic team and through that coach, Larry Nassar who as it comes, that he sexually abused over the last 20 years over 100 young women, 100 image bearers of God. And he's going away for a very, very long time in jail. And one of the consequences for what he did was he had to stand there as many of these women, I believe about 100 or so, came and shared the hurt and the, and the damage that he had done in their lives. And the very last woman that did it, a woman named Rachel Hollander, and forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but she was one of the very first women that was abused by him back in the year 2000. She was one of the very first that came and spoke out against him. And she is a believer in the power of Jesus. And she came and shared her faith as she gave that testimony in court. And then last week, she gave an interview with Christianity Today where she talks about the pain and the struggle that not only has she suffered because of what was done to her, but the fact that when she became to be an advocate for women who have been sexually abused like her, she was, She was at a church at the time that wouldn't support her, and she lost that church family as well, which is heartbreaking. And so I want to read to you a little bit of her interview. The interviewer asked, When you were first abused by Larry Nassar in 2000, it took 18 years for him to be convicted of sexually abusing girls. What have the past two decades been like for your faith? She answers, In the beginning, I wrestled with God's perspective on abuse, where He was and why He didn't do anything, or whether or not I was guilty or stained by it. I worked to get to a place where I could trust in His justice and call evil what it was because God is good and holy. Later on, the interviewer asks, Do you remember reaching a point where you doubted God's goodness? My biggest struggle was understanding God's perspective on sexual abuse. Ultimately, a conclusion I really had to come to myself through, I really had to come to myself through a lot of wrestling, a lot of tears, and a lot of studying. Interviewer, where did you find an answer? Rachel, going to scripture directly. Interviewer, was there a particular Bible verse or passage that you felt spoke to your situation? Rachel, one was from John 6, where Jesus asks Peter, do you want to leave too? Peter said, where else would I go, Lord? You have the words of life. There was a point in my faith where I had to simply cling to the fact that although I didn't understand or have the answers, I knew that God was good and that he was love. Whatever else I didn't understand could not be a contradiction to that. The strength of God is a strength beyond our understanding. The strength of God leads to a peace beyond our understanding but a peace in the fact that regardless of our circumstances, God is good. Amen? We want to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And they're going to lead us in a song, but I'm going to ask you to stay in your seats and I'm going to ask you to go into this time with a posture of receiving. See, there's many different stories in this room. There's many different levels of suffering that we've encountered in life. There's many different levels of suffering we're going through right now. And so what we needed to hear this morning was from God's living and active word is that for you, whatever your situation, the God of the universe is with you and brings you strength and peace. And so we have a special song we want to sing over you. And I want you to listen to the words. I want you to focus on what's being sung. This is God's word to you to be a place of encouragement and a light in the dark. And so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and close your eyes. And as we go into a time of prayer, I'm going to ask you, if you would, just take one or two cleansing breaths. Get yourself in a place where you're ready to receive. And before we pray, I just want to read again those last two verses from Psalm 29 over you. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Father God, we are here because we want to experience more of that truth. Father, we are here because we believe that you are almighty. Father, we believe that you are strength and peace. It is your character. And Father, with that, we ask that you give us more of this gift. That for whatever season we're at, whether we're doing okay and in a season of light, or whether we're in one of our darkest seasons of the soul, like David experienced many times that we embrace and understand what it means to be strengthened and to be blessed with peace. Father, as this song is sung over us, as we sit and receive, whether we close our eyes and listen, whether we watch, whether we just read the words on the screen, Father, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you that you are encouraging us. We thank you that it's not just for this place, but your voice, which, tre- which trembles the mountains, which calms the ocean, is what is speaking to us this morning. And it's your voice that we will take with us as we leave this place. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for your peace. In your son's name, amen.